The following podcast is brought to you by Rare Book School at the University of Virginia and sponsored by the Pine Tree Foundation of New York. To learn more about our programs and how you can support our school, please visit our website at www.rarebookschool.org. Thank you and enjoy. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this, the 10th and last of our lectures uh, in a series sponsored by the Pine Pine Tree Foundation of New York. Uh, As before, I'm extremely grateful to the Harrison Institute and the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library for their kind hospitality. The reception following Uh, Professor Greenspan's lecture not only will honor Professor Greenspan as our as our guest (laughs) many have said that I have left them in the dark (laughs) but will also acknowledge our great indebtedness to the Special Collections staff for the great work that they have done for us during the course of this summer. So something yet to look forward to in addition to the lecture. Walt Whitman began his career by learning typesetting at the age of 12, working as an apprentice on a newspaper called the Long Island Patriot, under the watchful eye of master printer William Hartshorn. Late in his life, Whitman drew upon his experience as a compositor in a brief poem called A Font of Type. It reads as follows. This latent mine, these unlaunched voices, passionate powers, wrath, argument, or praise, or comic leer, or praise devout, not non parier, brevier, bourgeois, long primer merely, these ocean waves arousable to fury and to death or soothed to ease in sheeny sun and sleep within the pallid silvers slumbering. Ezra Greenspan has made the point that the printing office replaced the schoolroom as the site of Whitman's education. And no poet of 19th century America was more alive to the process of printing and bookmaking than Whitman. So it is highly appropriate that Professor Greenspan, one of the leading 19th century literary and book historians in America, should have devoted so much of his career to the great poet himself. But as we shall hear this evening, he was by no means content to tread on what had become safe terrain, familiar ground. Ezra Greenspan, the Edmund and Louise Kahn Chair in Humanities and Professor of English at Southern Methodist University, is an eminent literary and cultural historian who studies the history of print culture and its various manifestations in the United States, both its central activities, writing, reading, printing, publishing, and its institutions such as libraries, bookstores, and schools. Of course, long engaged with the work of Walt Whitman, He also has, in recent years, developed an active scholarly interest in the culture of letters of 19th century African Americans, and, as we shall hear, is currently working on a comprehensive literary biography of the versatile 19th century African American writer William Wells Brown. 
Among his many publications are Walt Whitman and the American Reader, the Cambridge Companion to Walt Whitman, George Palmer Putnam, Representative American Publisher, Song of Myself, a source book and critical edition, and William Wells Brown, a reader. Of course, one of Professor's greatest, uh, Professor Greenspan's greatest contributions is as the co-editor of the annual book history. In 2009-10, he was the Mellon Distinguished Scholar at the American Antiquarian Society. And just to follow it up, in 11-12, he's been one of the few scholars to ever have been granted the NEH Fellowship and a National Humanities Center Fellowship in the same year. This is a scholar of great reach and extraordinary insight. I hope you are honored as I am to have him among our number this evening, Professor Greenspan. sure it works. <laughs> well, thank you, first of all, to Michael for a generous introduction. Um, I'm delighted to be here. I've never been to Rare Book School before, and I've had high expectations, and I have a feeling that they're, uh, they're going to be met. Uh, I'm very happy to see so many of you here. Um, I saw some of you about 5 o'clock coming out uh, looking as though you'd been bombed. <laughs> uh, and uh, I hope your staying power uh, will get you through the, the next 45 minutes or an hour. Um, one thing I'd like you to understand is I'm doing my best to speak directly to you. Um, I'm going to be talking about libraries and archives. And to go to a couple of terms that Michael used, Whitman's use of the term slumber about the potential of print leads me to ask what I think is the central anterior question. What about all of the peoples in our history who did not have access to print, who had no direct route, who in fact might have been held back from the fundamental skills that made print literacy possible in their lifetimes? That's been a question on my mind as I've made what I think is a central move in my career. It's not just a professional move, it's a personal move toward the world of ethnic Americans whose literary and cultural history we now know is much more complicated than we thought. We once thought they didn't have one. And I think William Wells Brown is as vibrant, as interesting in a response to that misunderstanding that fundamental ignorance, which was more fundamentally a prejudice um, than we, at least of my generation, had been educated to believe. So you might take that a little bit as the, the context that I want to take us through this evening. <clears throat> Put two biographers together in a room, and guess what they talk about? More likely than not, it won't be the lives of the subjects to whom they may have subordinated their own lives. My guess is what they really want to talk about is sources. Where did you get your information? How do you know what you know? What archives did you use? What kind of accessibility did you have? And what stories can you tell about the archives? Some biographies are harder to write than others, some border on the nearly impossible because access to sources is uncommonly difficult. Anyone who works on pre-20th century ethnic American biography lives in what I think of as a condition of source scarcity. What are the sources? Where are the archives containing the remains of people of color? And if we can find them, such as they are, how do we read them? Or to paraphrase the noted bibliophile quoted yesterday in the New York Times, an archive is a coalescence 
of human intentions. Archives, like books, have stories that need to be told, that need to be investigated. And that's really the, uh, I suppose, the object lesson that I'd like us to work on this evening. I'd like to take you on a guided tour of speculative inquiry into the archives as I've been exploring them in my work on the 19th century African-American writer, multimedia cultural impresario, and public activist, William Wells Brown. As we proceed, I'd like to split our attention between the specific case study of Brown and the sources and archives that contain his remains. One thing I'd like to make clear from the start is that when I speak of archives, I mean any and all structures, indoors or out, containing relevant cultural remains, and I assume those archival structures are themselves living, changing organisms with their own histories and biographies. I've learned a lot in recent years as a literary scholar from archaeologists and anthropologists. I think we have a lot to learn about the study of archives, and particularly as relates to peoples who've been, as it were, off the Eurocentric grid. If so, we'll need to account for the life of the archives we'll be talking about, as well as the life of this biographical subject. And I want you to note the, the signatures, the facsimile signatures, as I go along. They're going to come back later in, in the talk. A brief sketch of Brown's life will be necessary by way of introduction to our story. <clears throat> he was born a slave in rural Kentucky in or around 1814, grew up first on a farm in the interior of Missouri, afterward in and around early St. Louis. He spent considerable time as a slave hand on the first generation of steamboats plying the Mississippi and Missouri rivers before escaping from his final master steamboat in Cincinnati on January the 1st, 1834. That's virtually the only certain date that we have in his early life and striking off on a new life. He was at the time, I suspect, functionally illiterate and enumerate, the latter a common deficiency that I think has been largely overlooked by students of fugitive slave narratives, but he changed his condition fast and dramatically. Over the next 50 years, he would become a leading figure in the Underground Railroad, the organized anti-slavery movement, and the international temperance movement, but what we remember him for chiefly is his amazing it's really virtually unparalleled cultural production. He was the most prolific African-American writer and cultural impresario of his time, the most pioneering, and in a critical consensus forming quickly, the most significant African-American cultural figure of his century. I'm making these assertions, um, and you can challenge me afterwards, but I just need to get them out to give you a sense of Brown's stature. This is not um, a second-tier African-American writer or American writer. I'm going to make the argument in my book, and I think more and more literary scholars agree that Brown is the central cultural presence in the African-American world before the 20th century, and in fact his presence is much broader than we've previously believed. His books were many, they were enduringly serious, they were popular, most of them going through multiple editions, and they can still be found widely in special collections throughout the English-speaking world. In fact, we have 11 different uh, Brown first editions here at UVA. On the other hand, there survives hardly a single literary manuscript by Brown, not a single family letter written by or to him and so little is known about his parents, his children, and his friendships that you can find hardly a single fact-check sketch of any of them in published sources. Take this all together, and you'll understand that Brown presents great challenges for the biographer 
especially in the years before he became a published writer and a public figure. Directly in response to that challenge, I want us to concentrate, as it were, on the dark side of the moon tonight, on that portion of his life, the early years, that are the very most difficult to talk about, to get documentary evidence that gives us even the basis of a narrative other than the narratives that Brown told about himself, which are not entirely reliable. The way that I like to do this from this point on is just to do it through slides. Um, Brown was one of the great visual figures of the 19th century. He took the first African-American moving panorama across the British Isles. He was a great student of painting. Um, He was one of the first people to use magic lantern slides during his years in Europe. And so um, looking at him visually actually has uh, a special kind of resonance. So here we go. Um, I'm going to explain a little bit more about why I insist on being pictured. Um, but it does remind me that I forgot to say something about my wife, Ricky, who took the picture and who traveled, who has traveled thousands of miles and has been a collaborator along the way. Um, the most important point that I want to make preliminarily is we're standing now on the edge of the American frontier, such as it was in the first decade of the 19th century. We're in central Missouri. And this, as it turns out, is one of the most important archives that I've ever worked in, although at the time, I didn't realize it was an archive. We're situated on the very edge of a small town, actually a village called Marthasville, about 60 miles west of St. Louis, and about a mile north of the present location of the Missouri River. The, uh, there's the town, uh, and in fact, um, this is on the very edge of a municipal park, and the park is surrounded on three sides by historical signage. You'll understand very quickly that when I'm talking about this as an archive, I mean it actually in several different senses. There were three major historical events that came together on this site in the, in the very early years of the 19th century. Two, I, I'm sure you'll agree with me, you'll consent, were important. The third, I'm going to try to persuade you, um, is actually equally important. And here's the historical signage. Um, we shot this from close up. It's right within the municipal park. And what it tells us is that one of the earliest communities in, this was actually in the French Empire of Louisiana was a town called La Chalette. Um, It actually went back to about 1750, and it enters American history, as it were, our narrative, in 1804, when Lewis and Clark passed through La Chalette on their voyage of discovery across um, the western United States. This is a year after the Louisiana Purchase, and in fact, they would come back through La Chalette up the, uh, down the Missouri River two years later. Clark noted in his journal, uh, I'm paraphrasing, it's a near, nearly an exact quote, that in La Chalette, we saw the last white people we would see for the rest of our journey across North America. Um, take a quick look at the bottom of the screen. I'm going to make that into our second point about the boons. And that is that this area was also the part of Missouri associated with the family of Daniel Boone. Boone was already a legendary figure in Missouri by the second decade of the 19th century. Rebecca Boone died in the home in 1813 of her daughter and son-in-law, Jemima and Flanders Calloway. We're going to come to them in just a moment. So this is Boone country. That's historical event number two. Historical event number three, the one that I need to persuade you is important, is that, and you're looking now at exactly the flip side of that same historical marker. In other words, one side is early Franco-American, we're now in the English-American period, is that this was the site of a town called Marthasville that was founded 
by a transplant from Kentucky by the name of Dr. John Young. And John Young is going to be a central player now in our story. We looked very hard for the deed, a record of the deed by which Young bought this area that became Marthasville from a man by the name of Ramsey. That's misspelled. It should be an E. And the crucial line that I'd like you to read, um, you may think that you're in your eye doctor's uh, office, and if you can't see it, you're going to have to schedule another appointment. But what you'll note is that, first of all, you might, if you can read one line up, you'll see even the language of measurement is transitional between French Alpont and English Acres, but it's the line below that locates the exact dimensions of Young's property, that it's adjoining the land of Flanders Calloway and James Bryant. When I saw that, a light went off in my head because I remembered that Brown wrote in one of his memoirs He says some really outrageous things, and this was one of the biggest stretchers that I could remember, was that his mother had told him that she was the daughter of Daniel Boone. Well, it turns out that Daniel Boone was living next door in Flander Flander Calloway's home that adjoined the, uh, the farm of Dr. Young, I'm not suggesting that, in fact, Brown was the grandson of Boone, but what I am suggesting is that Boone was a presence. He certainly visited Young's house, and and Brown's mother probably had seen, I can't say formally, had met Boone, but certainly Boone was part of their world and part of um, of their imagination. It also tells me, by the way, that Brown's mother was probably half white, Um, There's one other um, small piece of evidence that suggests that. That's on the Flanders Calloway house. Um, I couldn't find a date, and I suspect that that postdates the second decade of the 19th century, but it is the location. It's probably an enhanced, uh, um, an enlarged uh, um, representation of the house. So three, let me just click back for one second. Um, So, three major historical events coming together. What's missing from this archive is any statement of the fact that Young was the owner of a scrawny, light-skinned slave boy by the name of William. This is where Brown grew up. An omission that, as we'll see, gets repeated through the early decades, through the early archives, for the first three decades of Brown's life. But in fact, let me just click back now to our first, um, there it is. Where I was standing without realizing was right on the center of John Young's farm. All the land that you've been looking at, all of what became Marthasville, and what you're looking at here, that park where the signage is, is right across the street. Everything up this hill would have been the center of the farm. Um, The farmlands themselves were down below. But I was probably standing on land, certainly within five meters, um, within which Brown must have walked at some point in his childhood. This was the young plantation. I had absolutely no idea at the time. So now to go forward. Put this all together, and I realized that what I was writing was a life of the American frontier, that to understand Brown's background, one had to understand his presence in the frontier, and that somehow the biography had to represent the fact that he stood on the same historical and cultural stage as his life, as the lives of Daniel Boone, Mark Twain, George Calabingham, and the king of Mississippi River panoramas, John Banford. These are all somehow lives that intersect Browns. Um, I want to do this really quickly. I know we have a few art historians in the room. Um, 
two pictures, two paintings by George Caleb Bingham. By the way, Brown knew the work of people like Bingham. Um, he knew the work of Banford, and in fact, his panorama was a direct response, a correction to the myth of manifest destiny um, as seen from a black perspective. 1847, the year that Brown saw in Boston Banford's panorama, Bingham was emerging as the, the most important genre painter in the United States. Um, you'll note on um, an African-American figure right bottom corner, um, Bingham's background was exactly the background of John Young. Virginia, Kentucky, Missouri. Slave-owning background, democratic politics, um, often in his painting, African-American figures are marginalized. They're always in the corner. They're outside the main action. On um, tight grid, hard, um, nice triangle, this is a very structurally powerful rendition of life on the Missouri River. But it's very foreign from the way Brown is going to recreate um, our historical iconography to put African-Americans toward the center. One more. This, 1851, was called Daniel Boone escorting settlers through the Cumberland Gap. Um, what to me is most striking is that Bingham is representing it from the west looking east. That is, there's an historical iconography that's already forming this is Boone leading settlers, and in all likelihood, the Young family and Brown's biological father's family, the Higgins, followed this exact route through the Cumberland Trail, and there's probably a connection between Young's coming to that portion of Missouri and Boone's presence. He might very well have known Boone from before. Um, here you'll note that this pioneering on representation of the American move west. We're at the height of Manifest Destiny now. Around 1850, it's pictured without any African Americans. Believe me, there would have been slaves. They were all slave owners. Boone and all of his people, the Youngs, the Higginses, um, heroic figures. Um, the women, even the dogs, look a little bit above average. <laughs> And they're marching toward us. That is to say, these are our people. They're giving us our story that, um, that Bingham is rendering back for an increasing um, American cultural audience, um, completely stripped of African presence. Oh, sorry. Now to switch directions a bit. I thought you might find it interesting to try to visualize the figure of William Wells Brown. And here we need to move toward the domain of archives containing visual and material culture. We'll move through the next set of images chronologically, accepting the logic of Wordsworth's well-known verse, the child is father of the man, stating a basic truth about personal development. This is something that biographers always do. If so, our starting point ought to be Brown at the earliest possible moment of his life. To facilitate that line of thinking, I want to show you the most accurate visual representation we have of Brown shortly after his birth, not in Lexington, Kentucky, as he claimed, it's a fabrication, but rather in the bluegrass country. And that would be it. Or if we try to represent him at the next stage of his life as a boy or even as an adolescent growing up in the Missouri Territory, um, that would be it. And this is part uh, of the problem of the archive. There was not, of course, a sliver of possibility that we might actually see Brown in his early years, but there is a realistic chance we might see him or other African Americans at the next stage of life. Slaves, as it were, might break into print, into the public record, at the time they made a break for freedom. Brown staged three escapes from his masters in St. Louis. During the second and third attempts, his masters advertised for his return in runaway newspaper notices and handbills. 
Trying to find documentary proof of those two escapes has, however, been one of the single most frustrating experiences in my research. I felt confident early on, maybe even a little bit cocky, that I would succeed. I thought I knew exactly where to look. But in fact, I found nothing. The newspapers from those periods did not exist. Um, Handbills are almost impossible to find. One in 10,000 might survive. And that would have been the earliest representation of who this person was, what he looked like, his defining characteristics, of course, as seen by the white master class. But there's no finding them. There is, though, a way of coming at the subject indirectly. I always say to myself, if you can't go in through the front door, try the side or try the back. You're looking here at a William Wells Brown look-alike in the form of a generic fugitive slave emblem or ornament, as they were called, taken from a type specimen book printed in Cincinnati in 1834 by the leading type foundry west of the Atlantic seaboard. I chose this particular type specimen book deliberately because Brown escaped from Cincinnati on January the 1st, 1834. Quite possibly, I think even probably, the types and the emblems used by the local printer who prepared the runaway notices of Brown came from the type foundry. We could spend some very interesting time reading these particular emblems. Um, I really don't, we can talk, if we want to ask questions, please do, but I'll just point out a couple of things. These are the two most expensive um, ornaments in in this entire, it's a beautiful book. It's a very high quality foundry. Um, And of course, the people who who created this had no sense that one might read, there's a shifting divide up and down the middle, separating them. They're just objects. You know, it's like a piece of fruit and a vegetable. What do they have to do with each other? But of course, narratively, we read them as powerfully connected on even the manner of signification. This is a commercial enterprise, and so they have numbers. If you're a printer in Toledo, Ohio, and you want to buy one of these, you order number 870 or 871, and of course, with the number comes the price on these people's heads. And if you've seen fugitive slave ads, you've seen these. They're virtually everywhere. As here, sorry, it's not a very good photograph, um, but this is a pretty close look-alike to young William, he had no last name at the time, 18th of November, it's a French Louisiana newspaper, 18th November, 1833, a black by the name of William, who might be called Billy or Bill. Certainly William, our William, was not William. We don't really know his name. It would have been Bill, Billy, Will, or Willie. Um, probably about the same height. You'll notice the generic resemblance. It's not precise, but um, in effect, that generic physical representation will pass from one uh, journal to another. Um, It just happens that William Wells Brown would be coming down to New Orleans three days after this particular um, fugitive slave ad went up. We know that because in a different newspaper, the steamer Chester, which is, um, can you see it, the first full paragraph, the, uh, the, the skipper of the ship was a man by the name of Price, meaning Price, was William Wells Brown's last master coming down from St. Louis. And this advertisement came from November the 30th, 1833. Brown would escape from Cincinnati on December fir- uh, on January 1st. The dates work. You have to trust me on this. But in fact, we can document that Brown was actually telling the truth on all the details work. It's also interesting. What was the ship carrying 
Um, what I was looking for were slaves. And I know that Enoch Price routinely transported slaves down the river from St. Louis. Now I want to tell you a central story about the Southern Archive, one that's proved integral to my, part, to my particular narrative of William W. Brown. As many such stories do, this one tells a story, a tale, about the intersection of family, race, region, and nation. It might come from the pages of Faulkner, it might come from the pages of Morrison, but in our instance, it comes from the family chronicle of the Higgins family. Brown was a Higgins, as you're about to hear and as you're about to see. That was his birthright name that he got once and only once in his entire life. It happened in 1854, that's 20 years after he escaped from Price in Cincinnati, while living in London as a fugitive slave when his freedom papers were purchased, in fact, by the same family that purchased the freedom of Frederick Douglass. On, in those documents, he was named for the first time legally in public as being of the Higgins family. Brown had said in a couple of his memoirs that his mother told him that his father was a man by the name of George Higgins. And in fact, um, that turns out to be exactly right. Ricky and I spent a lot of time looking for Higgins. And we found him. We found the whole family. We found them from Virginia to Kentucky to Tennessee. And then finally, we tracked them, as it were, to his grave in Alabama. I'm going to give you a very, very short tour through this particular document. There's one crucial detail. To find a George Higgins is almost impossible. There are just too many of them in the archive. You need something more like a middle initial of W. When we found the W, which is in this document, we realized that we really had a very specific name um, that we would be able to, uh, to track down. On the letter that I'm about to show you, it's an amazing letter. We found in four different libraries in Kentucky, it's never been published, it's never been used by a serious historian, um, but it's a remarkable family letter. It existed originally. Um, I've not seen an original, but I know they exist. I've seen them in chat rooms. People in the Higgins family still have them. What you're looking at is a modern typescript. It's about 10 pages long, and the author is a man by the name of H.H. Higgins. He lived in uh, Athens, Alabama, and he was writing in 1871 to his cousin, a fellow Alabaman by the name of William J. Higgins. What he was writing about was the history of their family, what he called the great patriarchs of our name who tracked across the wilderness and built a great civilization. Now what I'd like to show is... Um, just a couple of particular lines. And, uh, we're going to be about halfway down the document where it says, the names of those known to me, he's talking about the Higgins family, were as follows. Robert, William Yarbrough, and George W., that's how we got the W., your father. I do not know what the W stands for, but always thought it was Fort Washington. During this period, anybody named George W. had to be George Washington. In fact, his name was William, George William. In fact, the name William runs through the Young and the Higgins families. I believe that they named this little slave boy, whether they were signaling uh, a family connection or not, is unlikely but not impossible. So now we know it's George W., but here's the remarkable part of the letter. It's about five, six lines down, and they're talking about Molly Higgins. She was the only sister among 12 brothers. These were big people, by the way. 6263 Indian fighters, a remarkable group of people. 
Then there were no Frenchified phrases now, such as Molly, Annie, Nanny, etc. So this Molly, who married Mr. Leonard Young, who was the father of Dr. John Young, our John Young who moved to Missouri, of Mount Sterling. Mount Sterling is two counties east of Lexington. The first words Brown wrote as a writer in publication were, I was born in Lexington, Kentucky. Almost all slave narratives begin. They must tell the truth. I was born in such and such. Douglas, I was born in Tuckahoe, etc., etc. Brown was not born in Lexington. Believe me, we checked. He was born in Mount Sterling, or probably just outside of Mount Sterling, with whom, Dr. Young, your father, George W., read medicine. That's the smoking gun. Because we checked really carefully, and it turns out that George Higgins was on the tax records of Montgomery County, Mount Sterling, uh, Kentucky, in 1812 and 1813. Brown was born in 1814. Higgins and Young were very close cousins. It turns out that that Higgins, when he got around to having white children for a change, he had 12 of them. Number 10, he named John Young Higgins. Even though he might not have seen his cousin for many years, he was very close to John Young. What must have happened? He went over to Young's plantation, or he went to Young's house in Mount Sterling, and the only way I can describe it is what happened happened. But Higgins was undoubtedly the father of William Wells Brown. It happened presumably while he was studying medicine. He later became one of the leading doctors in Tennessee. And he goes off to the rest of his existence. So this letter has been in the hands of white southern archivists and Higginses for generations. And what's happened is basically what Brown called, the co- this is a, a quote, the colonization of the historical record. Black presence is either erased or it's never there in the first place. There's nothing to erase when, in fact, it never existed. Now let me show you the manifestation of the archive in the present day. What you're looking at is a commemoration at the Central um, Cemetery of Athens, Alabama. I mentioned that the author of that letter, H.H. Higgins, was from Athens. In fact, he was the architect of the first college in Alabama in Athens. But more to the point, he was a general in, in the Confederate Army and the highest ranking soldier in the cemetery in downtown Athens. When they come to celebrate Confederate holidays, they make a point of commemorating in particular, he's their symbolic figure, the gravesite of H.H. Higgins. We all have history and we all have versions, but what's particularly interesting to me is the statement by the gentleman on the far side who thanked the audience for being there to commemorate such an occasion. He reminded them that our heritage is under a constant attack and we must continue to fight to preserve the true history of the South. Well, they're fighting words and they're fighting words. And it just seems to me that this particular letter is, of course, it's central to recreating the the background of Brown, but it's also, to my mind, Um, a kind of document that resonates with much of the history of the archive in the American South and to the extent that the South has written the history books of the North, um, it's had nationwide repercussions. I thought to myself, how does one reconstruct a family that never was? The Higginses, as you'll understand, are an impossible family. According to the ideology of the, pre, uh, the pre-Civil War South, this could not have happened. So I thought to myself, with Brown, what's most important? And to my mind, it's his hand. 
It's writing, it's literacy, it's what one does, to go back to Michael's introduction, that leads up to the print shop. So we went looking for signatures by all of our major Higgins or young cousins. Um, this is from the probate file of G.W. Higgins. No comment necessary. Believe it or not, we've been researching this family for five years now. I finally found a letter by John Young last week. Um, so that's John Young's signature, yours affectionately. And this is a concoction, of course. It couldn't be, but in another sense, it must be, if we're going to understand the history of the American South. So I took the signatures that you've already seen. You've seen three of them already. Higgins, Young, this is Brown's engraved facsimile signature from the first slide that I showed, and this will be from virtually the last slide that I'll show. Um, it is interesting. Um, we all change, and Brown changes from his first book. Um, that engraved facsimile is from his European travelogue five years later. You know, it looks a little bit as though his fingers had gone to the orthodontist. You know, his signature is cleaned up. Um, his name is anglicized. Um, but of course, uh, I'm making light of something deadly serious. This is a, a relationship that could never exist. And what's most problematic is that I can't represent the central figure. She doesn't have a name. She doesn't have a picture. She doesn't have a history. And she doesn't have a signature. But, you know, if I could reconfigure this, I'd need more space in the middle for the missing figure of Brown's mother, a woman named Elizabeth, whom we know nothing about except through what Brown wrote about her. And one of my particular readings of Brown is that he was a mama's boy. He was her favorite. He was the youngest. He was probably the closest. But... There you have the Higgins, Young, Brown family, as it was, and as it, in a manner of speaking, was not. Let me show you how difficult it is to render the name and the presence of Elizabeth going forward in time. Um, I'm going to show you two different, uh, this is actually one screen, I shot this off of microfilm. It's the Marriage Registry of Boston, 1860. The middle entry is for Brown, his second marriage, April the 12th, to a woman named Annie E. Gray in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, by the way, I said numbers, numeracy is a problem. Um, look at his age, that can't be. That's about five years off. Men maybe lie about their age as well as women. But this is what I really want to, to direct to your attention to. First of all, Brown referred to himself as an author. Um, this is almost, I don't know if there's another African-American by 1860 who might officially have identified himself or herself as an author. His birth, Lexington, Kentucky, I've already indicated is a fabrication. Annie was from Baltimore, but it's the listing of the parents that's just to me stunning. The poor reporter asked, who was your mother, who was your father? And being a bureaucrat, trying to work within the established codes and structures, he wrote George and Elizabeth Higgins. What was he going to do? Now, one final little set of images and one more turn in our exploration of the archive. And this one is specifically oriented to the profession of librarianship. One of the best ways to research Brown has been to track down individual copies of his books and to see whether they reflect back, how and to what extent they reflect back on his life. Those that contain inscriptions or annotations often do. And here's a case in point. You're looking at the title page and frontispiece engraving of the first African-American travelogue. It's a wonderful book. It's a book of great importance. Um, 
you can see the new rendering of Brown. He looks like a transformed man from five years earlier. I commented on his signature. If I had more time, I talk about how one might follow the trail not just of the manuscript, but of the visual representations, the photographs, the garotypes, engravings. Um, Brown had a way of finding the best artists in London, in Boston, New York, um, and that wasn't just an, a matter of chance. But it's the particular copy that I want to draw your attention to. Look at the inscription. This is Brown's inscription writing in London in 1852 to his best friend, William C. Nell, an African-American activist in Boston, whom he calls Esquire. Um, that would have pleased both of them. With the loving regards of the author, London, I think that's October 16, 1852. What's interesting to me about that is there's a kind of transmission going on between Brown, who knows he's doing something pioneering, living as a fugitive slave. He's the most important black writer and activist in the British Isles, writing to his friend William Cooper Nell, who's in the process of writing the first major synthetic history of African Americans. But that's not really the story. The story is the complication that comes I don't know if I can do it with this clicker. Let's see what happens. Um, well, look at the nameplate. This, is, by the way, came from the Beinecke. And I should tell you that when I asked the Beinecke for permission to show this, and I said it's going to be at Rare Book School, um, they said, that is exactly what we would wish you to do. This is so in any case, it came from the library. And I checked. It's the personal library of Ulrich Benel Phillips, better known as U.B. Phillips, calling himself son and historian of the Old South, professor of history at Yale, 1934. Phillips was the leading historian of the American South in the age of segregation. And so we have a book by Brown, once owned, I don't know how it got out, from Nell's possession and into Phillips's, but the future great historian of African Americans, whom Brown would one up with his three major histories of African Americans, winding up in the personal possession of one of the arch segregationist historians, a major figure. He's writing at almost the exact moment that Gone with the Wind just sweeps, as it were, across the American cultural stage. But that's not the whole story. This is the front nameplate. Okay, so there's some. That's the back nameplate. It now has on the back side the James Weldon Johnson Memorial Collection of Negro Arts and Letters through Carl Van Vecht in 1941. How these pieces came together, I don't yet quite know. I don't know when that nameplate was put on. I don't know if Phillips was still around. But to my mind, it's objects like this um, that when read with great pressure, with great intellectual pressure, begin to open up and tell larger stories, not just about the archive, but about our history and our culture. Thank you very much.